You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And my colleague, Vildana Hyrick, who typically co-hosts with me, is off this week. So it's just me. And this week on the show, well, the stock market has obviously been on fire this year. There's no doubt about that. But there's trouble brewing in another market that is very systemically important, commercial real estate. In fact, concern about this market has reached the magazine cover phase. This week, New York's magazine featured a picture of the Manhattan skyline with the headline, Worth Less, and it pointed out some of the more high-profile troubles among those famous skyscrapers. And a few weeks ago, our own Business Week magazine featured a headline that said, Commercial real estate is getting scary, and a picture of those creepy twin ghosts from The Shining standing at the end of an office hallway. How scary is it? Are we at shining level scary yet in commercial real estate? I don't know, but we're going to get into it with a guest this week who knows quite a bit about the commercial real estate sector. In fact, he's one of those guests who, if I were to read you a list of everything he's involved in, well, it would probably take up all the time we have for the podcast. So I'm just going to stick with the highlights as I introduce him here. He is the chairman and CEO of Suffolk, which is one of the largest privately owned construction firms in the country. He's also the chair of the Real Estate Roundtable Trade Group. Also, he's the chair of Boston College, as well as the former chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. His name is John Fish. John, welcome to the show. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. That's a lot of chairs, John, I was saying. But it's good to have you in our chair this week to, to talk about this commercial real estate issue going on. But John, talk to us a little bit about Suffolk for those who aren't familiar with your business. You guys were involved in what I consider to be one of the coolest buildings in the U.S., which is in Hollywood, Florida, the Hard Rock Hotel, which is basically designed like a giant guitar. (laughs) I think that's one of my favorite buildings ever built. Yeah, Mike, the job you reported to is is called the Hollywood Hard Rock. It's about a $1.8 billion project we built down there about four years ago for the Seminole tribe down there, which is very fortunate. Company started back in 1982. Uh, I came from a four generation family business. My brother, who was a year older, took over the family business. My dad lent me $80,000 to start Suffolk as a non union business. And through a lot of great help and a lot of support across the board, we've grown the business nationally into about a $5.6 to $6 billion business. And I feel very humbled and lucky to be able to say that to you. And to me, as an organization, how we've done that is 
we've created an environment really based on people and understanding how important culture is to an organization. As we often say, culture eats strategy for lunch at the end of the day. And we have at Suffolk, what does it call a cult-like culture? Now, what Suffolk does, we're a general contracting business, but also we have different tentacles we call verticals. That is, a, we have a technology company called Suffolk Technology. We just raised and closed a $100 million regulated fund last week, which invests in prop tech, construction tech solutions. We've made about 30 investments. Those are seed and Series A investments. We're very proud of that. We also have a Suffolk Capital Arm. We don't compete with our clients. We invest with our clients in the GP stack of the development capital stack. And that provides us with a sense of alignment of interest in the construction, which typically doesn't happen. So therefore, people partner together much nicer. We also have a design firm, and it's really digital design. It's not the typical design firm. We do design support, we design assist, and we do design build. And the idea is how do we leverage technology and artificial intelligence in the 21st century to create a more predictable, accurate design? And we're not fully there yet. We're leveraging some very good solutions uh, in the country right now and globally that allowing ourselves to provide that much more accurate and level of predictability in the design process of the job. And then lastly, we have a self-perform arm that provides you know, material deliveries, equipment, and concrete and labor, the typical type of self-perform projects around the country. So overall, our ultimate vision as a company is how do we integrate the entire built world into a seamless platform by leveraging data and technology? Now, Mike, why I say data is because we're probably one of the few construction companies in the country that have a clean data lake. It's taken us probably about seven or eight years to accomplish that. We have probably about 29, 30 data analysts in the company. Probably about five years ago, we started using and leveraging data to provide a sense of predictability and accuracy to what we're doing overall. It's funny, John. I thought this was going to be the week where I get a break from talking about AI in the markets, but uh, <laughs> I guess not. It's fascinating to me that AI is even finding some applications in the construction industry. And I want to get into that later, but first, let's get into that commercial real estate topic that I started this all off with, because I think it is very much front and center for a lot of investors these days of exactly what's going on in the CRE market. You know, it's fascinating. You you mentioned an 80000 loan from your father to get this, this huge company going. So clearly, you know a little bit about how to handle the financing of this business. But I want to start with the basics, John, because I think for a lot of people who aren't in the weeds in this sector, they don't quite uh, appreciate the differences between residential and commercial real estate financing. You know, most of us, we look forward to that day where we're, we finally make the final payment on our 30-year fixed rate mortgage and we pop the champagne and, and burn the mortgage. It's a much different ballgame in commercial real estate. So talk to us about that difference, how the financing of these projects is different and why this spectacular rise in interest rates that we've experienced this year is so dangerous to this sector. I really think you need to take a step back and really unpack what has transpired over the last 50 to 20 years to get to that answer. And again, I think we all agree, sort of hit up against the black swan event. That's what I would call it at the end of the day. And you couple that with prior monetary policy back after 2007 and fiscal policy, basically living at the zero bond of interest rates over a 10-year period of poll. I call that people sort of drinking from the punch bowl, generally speaking, and continue on. And all of a sudden, we have the pandemic. The world basically stopped. 
And when the world stopped, all of a sudden, the, the government injected almost two and a half trillion dollars worth of money to stimulate the economy. And coupled with that, then they went forward to build back better in the CHIPS Act. So a total of $6.5 trillion of stimulus. And so therefore, all of a sudden, in a very, very short period of time, we had inflated amount of capital in the system on a global basis, not just nationally here. And as a result of that, what happened is interest rates, I mean, inflation started to spike. And what I think the Fed, candidly, I think, misjudged this concept of transitory and non-transitory. And they classified it as a transitory. We found out that it really wasn't transitory. It was embedded in the system. And I don't think the, the Fed responded quick enough to the situation. Again, I'm not trying to blame anybody, but I think nobody had a glass ball. And once they did react back in November 22nd, it was almost too late. Inflation had jumped grown to 9%. All of a sudden, you had the supply chain issues going on there. Material rates went up at the end of the day. And the cost of construction, first time in history, was greater than the value that you were creating from the building itself. We've never seen that before. So all of a sudden, over a 12-month, 13-, 14-month period of time, the Federal Reserve slams on the brakes, has over 525 basis points jump in rates, which really causes, at the end of the day, a complete shock to the system. People that were buying capital or borrowing capital at that point in time at 3 4 5 6% now all of a sudden are in double digits. And when you talk about these large structures, especially in New York City, that article you're talking about, you get all these buildings out there, amazing, almost 100 million square feet of, of vacant office space so is staggering at the end of the day. And you say to yourself, well, right now we're in a situation where those buildings are about 45, 55, 65% occupied, and all of a sudden the cost of capital to support those buildings is almost doubled. So you've got a double whammy. You've got vacancy down, so the value is down, there's less income coming in, and the cost of capital has gone up exponentially at the end of the day. So you've got a situation where timing is really, really, really impacted the development industry substantially. Now, when you take a look at that, the biggest problem right now is because of that, the capital markets nationally have frozen. And the reason why they've frozen is because nobody understands value. We can't evaluate price discovery because very few assets have traded during this period of time. Nobody understands where bottom is. Therefore, until we achieve some sense of price discovery, if people understand value, we'll never work ourselves through that. Now, what I would say to you is light at the end of the tunnel came just a little bit. It was back in June 29th when the OCC the FDIC and the federal government provided policy guidance to the industry as a whole. And that policy guidance, I think, is very, very important for a couple of reasons. One, it shows the government with a sense of leadership on this issue because it's an issue that people don't want to touch because it really can be carcinogenic at the end of the day. It also provides a sense of direction and support for the lending community and the borrowers as well. And by doing such, what happens now is the clarity, basically what they're saying is similar to the trouble debt restructuring program. They're saying, listen, any asset out there where you've got a qualified borrower and you've got a quality asset, we will allow you to work with that borrower to ensure we can create the, recreate the value that was once in that asset itself. And we'll give you 18 to 36 months extension, basically pretend to extend. Whereas what happened in 2009, 
That was more of a long-term forward guidance proposal, and it really impacted the CIFIs at the end of the strategically important financial institutions. This policy direction is really geared towards the regional banking system. And Mike, why I say that? Because right now, the CIFIs do not have, the GCIFs they're called today, don't have a real big book of real estate debt on their books, probably less than 8 or 7%. Whereas the regional banks across the country right now, thousands of them, have over probably 30 to 35 and some even up to 40% of their book in real estate. So that forward guidance gave at least the good assets and the good borrowers an opportunity to go through a workout at the end of the day. You know, it's funny, John, I was going to respond to your answer by saying, is this extended and pretend? You know, it's that seems to me almost like a derogatory thing, phrase that people use for this type of guidance from the Fed or, or this type of approach to solving this problem. But is is that the wrong way to think about it? Is extend and pretend actually the way to get us out of this mess or at least, you know, stop stop the bleeding to some degree? Let me say this to you. I think some of the well-known financial guru stated that this was not material to the overall economy. Okay. And I'm not sure that's the case. I don't want to challenge that individual. I don't use a name. But when I think about the impact that this has on the regional banking system, basically suburbia USA, we had Silicon Valley Bank go down. We had Signature Bank go on. We saw Republic go down. If we have a systemic problem in the regional banking system, the unintended consequences of that could be catatonic. In addition to that, what will happen is, When real estate values go down, 70% of all revenue in cities in America today come from real estate. So all of a sudden, you start lowering and putting these buildings into foreclosure. The financial spigot stops, right? All of a sudden, the tax revenues go down and people think, okay, that's okay. Well, what happens is you talk about firemen, policemen, and teachers in Main Street, USA. And at the end of the day, we've never gone through something as tumultuous as this right now, I think back into, I think, 19, late 60s. And we have to be very, very cautious that we don't tip over the building that we think is really stable at the end of the day. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. As you point out, it's really those regional banks that probably are the biggest players, at least from you know public equity banks that we track, some of the biggest players in commercial real estate. But even today, and today's Wednesday, uh, July 19th, Goldman Sachs came out with its earnings. And you don't think of a Goldman as being a huge property lender, but of course they had they do have some commercial real estate on their their books. And they blamed real estate for about a billion dollar hit to earnings. And I know a lot of the other big banks are increasing loan loss provisions for real estate. Oddly, Goldman's stock rallied on the day. You know, the the equity market is in this risk on mode. This seems like it's a problem that's gonna linger with us for years and sort of be a very slow to unfold. Do you think the equity markets, you know, if you had to put your spuddy senses on, are they sort of whistling past the graveyard on this issue, do you think? It's one of the questions of the day to be very, very candid with you. First off, I would say about Goldman's earnings today, where they were down, I think, 56% from last quarter. And I think you could sort of put that in a category of Goldman is more of a transactional institution versus B of A or JP Morgan, where it's really a lending institution. So interest income, mortgages, and so forth and so on. But Goldman, I think, is really an interesting thing because one, maybe a billion dollars in real estate, but also what it's saying out there, there is instability in the financial markets overall. Transactions, IPOs, various other types of issues that go on really are frozen right now. And that's not good for Main Street, America, or the community at all. And what we need to figure out is I'm going to come back to this issue of a level of stability, a level of predictability. I think you hit a 52-week high, I think that was this week, right. that's my knowledge. Yep. And you sit back and say to yourself, you've got something almost like a, a point in time where you take a look at, you know, you get a version of the, of the 2 and 10, right, which is sort of an indicator somewhere. You've got consumer spending right now still relatively strong, but I would caution people right now, we had $2.5 trillion of consumer spending probably back two and a half years ago when we, we all this money was given to us by the federal government. We're down to $500 billion right now. So I think that's starting to wind down a little bit more. We've got inflation that's gone from 9% down to 3 but I think let's not talk about inflation. Let's talk about core, because core is at 4.8. We're still stubborn on the energy side of things, on the uh, you know housing side of things. Then I take, take a look at the labor markets. Candidly, Mike, we are at zero unemployment in construction. Okay, We aren't at 3.4, 3.6. We're at zero. Okay, How's that in an economy that basically is starting to freeze itself up? And lastly, I think from a foreign policy point of view, we don't know where this Ukrainian thing is going, not even to mention the China situation in Taiwan. And I think overall, when you put all those pieces of the puzzle together, it's really the equation we've used, the form we've used in the past of 2% inflation. I don't think that's as applicable today as it was in the past. Larry Summers was asked a question on your show, Bloomberg with David Weston, what he thought about 2% inflation. Is, is that really something that's mandated by the Fed? Yes, it is their mandate that they served in the Fed, so I understand that. But really, I'm not sure that's really what we need to be shooting for. And to me, what we need to be shooting for is probably something more in the three, three and a quarter range. And why I say that is because I think that one of the underbellies of what's going on right now is inflation was at a long period of time below zero bound because there was a lot of emphasis 
on globalization. And all of a sudden, material costs and labor costs that we were offshoring was substantially lower than what we doing when we onshore those type of things. Now, all of a sudden, through the Trump administration, we start to nationalize things. And it's a weak in our relationship to places like China. The cost of labor onshore and the cost of material onshore is moving up. So all of a sudden, you're in a situation where it shouldn't be a real surprise as we nationalize and onshore and reindustrialize our country and less reliant on the European Union okay, and China and India okay, that we're having this sort of sticky inflation at the end of the day. So I think what's going to happen, we're going to go through a cycle over the next 12 to 24 months. We're really going to understand for the first time in the 21st century how important globalization is to the overall impact of our U.S. economy. I think it's extremely important. Do I think we need to reindustrialize America and onshore things? America is the best country in the world by far. But at the end of the day, in a global economy, we need to be able to compete. And I think this issue of globalization is a very, very important equation or element for us to compete. Right. As you alluded to briefly, interest rates are obviously the major pressure point on commercial real estate right now, but not the only one. You know, we went through this pandemic the entire world went to work at home for months, if not years, or at least the entire office workforce went home. I know a lot of big companies are, are very actively trying to get everyone back into the office on a more regular basis. Big city mayors, politicians are, are very actively in that camp, too. But to some degree, I feel like the horse is out of the barn and the world has learned that a lot of these jobs can be done effectively, productively at home. And I can't help but wonder if that is just a game changer for commercial real estate going forward. The idea of ever getting back to the values of these office buildings before the pandemic seems like such a long shot to me. I mean, is that, you know, when you think of it in the sober light of days, is that the right way to think about this or or not? Mike, I, I think Jim Collins talks about not all points in time are equal. Um, in his books. And to me, we're at a point in time where we're really, it's a new era. I think we've got a generational issue. I think this is going to be around for either at least a half or if not more of a decade because of the individuals that will grow up during this time period. But at the end of the day, I think what we need is a recalibration. And I don't think it's where it is today. I think there's somewhere in the middle between where it is today and where it was before. And I think we as a capitalistic society will get there. It might take two or three or four years to get there. But I would say this, I really believe strongly for the sake of Main Street USA, we all have responsibility. The downtowns of America, San Francisco, Seattle, even Boston right now, New York City are hurting. We have a responsibility, both economically and socially, to come back to work at some point in time. And if we don't come back to work, we need to allow the competitive forces to dictate next steps. Meaning if people are working from home, that means we can offshore things to India in China at half that cost. And I think eventually what's going to happen as part of that equilibrium, that's exactly what's going to happen. Okay. In the sake of downtowns, the pizza shops, coffee shops, the school teachers. Okay. We need to think about the unintended consequences of this strategy remoting for work. Chad, I'm wondering from the perspective of the head of a construction company, you know, a lot of times when this issue of office vacancy comes up, a lot of people, granted people not intimately familiar with this industry think, well, 
you know, some of these cities still have a strong demand for residential buildings. Can't we just convert these office buildings into residential? And I know, you know, enough's been said about the difficulties involved in that. You know, big office building, it doesn't have the, the plumbing, the electric, enough windows to convert everything into apartments. But I wonder, is it feasible to think about going forward that when you build a building, is it possible to do it in a way where it's flexible to go residential if that's the in-demand market, convert back to office? I mean, is that too far-fetched to think think about when you're building a, a building too impractical or too... Mike, I, I think you hit the spot spot on. I think absolutely. If you're doing what is a clear spare building with a concrete flat plate construction, I don't get too technical, and you you have three columns, columns located in certain areas, you know what your core is. If you design that initially, again, you can't be as efficient both on the commercial side and the residential side as you want to be. There would be compromises across the board. I don't think we're going to get to that. I think about 30% or 25% of the buildings out there have the ability to be converted. I think when you really talk about residential, it's a whole different sort of kettle of fish. What I mean by that, residential shortfall, we have right now about 6 million units of housing that we need to create in America. We're only creating about a million to a million and a half a year. That 4 million, we need to come together as business and government and develop thoughtful policy to incentivize people to want to build, both from transit-oriented type of environment to a NIMBYism, not my backyard. We need to forestall all those particular things and allow the real estate construction to be able to produce what they're capable of producing in an expedited way. And today, the, the prices of homes, look at Boston. I read in the Boston Globe this morning, $900,000 was the average price of a home in around the Boston community. How do you expect a family raising two or three children, even both parents working, they'll afford a $900,000 mortgage. So I think what we need to do is we need to have very thoughtful, incentivized programs to allow more building ubiquitously throughout the United States of America. And I assume that labor issue that you mentioned is a big part of sort of what's going on in the construction market these days. You know, I mean, look, the labor market's tight everywhere, but wow, you, you said it's darn near close to 0% unemployment in construction. What do you suppose is driving that? Is it immigration, lack of immigration? Is it better opportunities elsewhere, all the above? Why is labor so tight in the construction market right now? It, it's somewhat complicated, but let's try to unpack it a little bit when I think about this. Is if we take a look back to 2008, construction employment was at 7.7 million. It wasn't until 2011, construction got down to about 5.4. And that was a 2.4 roughly million decrease. So there's a lag in construction to when the economy starts churning itself or slowing itself down at the end of the day. Second, I think what's a big problem right now is when I think about this, you know, as I unpack this, interest rates. Right now, people cannot move out of their homes when they're locked into a 30 rate fixed at three and a half to four percent, and going to buy into a six or seven percent mortgage. So therefore, people aren't moving out. But then again, we need to generate new housing. So there's a really you know, sort of in equilibrium there. Then you take a look at the demand for housing, which I spoke to you about the amount of units. Next, you talk about the fiscal policy right now. Not only are we dealing two and a half trillion dollars of cash, right? We get build back better, the chips built. All of a sudden, we get six point five trillion dollars pumped into the economy, which is creating a lot of demand at the end of the day. 
And lastly, I would say, most importantly, I would say that so the icing on the cake of this discussion is immigration. We right now are bringing in as few immigrants in the United States and offering citizenship, I think probably in the last 25 to 30 years. At a point in time, where it needs to be the opposite. But to me, this issue has become politicized. We need to recognize the only way we can grow our economy is grow our ability to consume. 70% of GDP is consumption. If we don't grow our economy, we don't grow our population, we grow our ability to consume, we're not going to work ourselves out of this. Secondly, workforce participation, as low as 62% today, the lowest right now on record. Okay, People don't want to work. COVID, post-retirees at 55 years old. And, and lastly, people don't want to get involved in a hardcore construction business. It's changed. And what we rely on is a lot of first-generation members come into our business. We recruit as a company right now out of community colleges, both tech schools. We don't need a college degree. All we want is a heart and a desire to want to work. We'll train them ourselves. And I think that is one of the reasons or solutions to this unemployment crisis at the end of the day. But to me, what we need to do is we need to let the COVID in the, in the pandemic go through our digestive system so we come out to that new norm in about, I think, 12 to 18 months. And we'll understand how to solve this issue with a much more degree of accuracy at that point in time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. John, if I could ask you to sort of think back to your days at the Boston Fed and, and put that central banker hat on again for us. One of the interesting disconnects between the markets and what Chair Powell and other members of the Fed have been saying this year is the notion of when the Fed will actually pivot and start cutting rates. Uh, if you look at the short-term interest rate markets, Fed fund futures, 
all year they've been convinced that a pivot to lower rates is on the horizon. You know, earlier in this year, they were pricing in cuts by the end of this year. Now that hasn't happened. They're pricing in cuts, pretty aggressive cuts for next year. Is the market right about that? And is it this commercial real estate issue that possibly could prove them to be right if it causes enough ripple effects in, in the economy? Mike, let me go back to 2008 and nine when I was at the Fed and then I became the chair of the Fed. I was amazed at once we were going through the tumult back then, the way that the researchers at the Fed were understanding what was going on, that they were using a lot of historical formulas to try to understand what was currently going on in this great financial crisis. And not a lot of it added up to the end of the day. And so I think some of the ways that they look at things might be a little bit outdated. And who am I to say? Because I'm not an economist. I respect Janet Yellen. I respect Jay Powell. But today, right now, with this high interest rate environment, I think what a lot of people are clamoring for, we need to give it time. All of a sudden, we've reduced inflation in less than 12 months from nine to three, from core from almost 10 to 4.8. That is monumental. We need to give the prescription that the Fed has given the patient time to get through the system. I believe the 25th, 26th, we're going to see a 25 basis point jump. I'm hoping that through August, they take a little siesta. We come back in September. And all of a sudden, the data is pointing out that the prescription they've given the patient is working. And let's take the foot off the gas. And then I think if we stabilize, as you know, historically, any time the Fed, the high time before they raise interest rates and stop raising interest rates is at the lowest end, nine months, up to the highest end, I think, 13 to 14 months. So I'm hoping we hit that nine-month trigger sometime this fall. And then nine months from now, or seven months from now, we start seeing a reduction in those rates. And that would be my prediction. So I'm sitting back saying to myself, Late spring of next year, we're going to start seeing some adjustments to the overall federal funds rate, which I think once people know, though, in my opinion, that the Fed is no longer going to continue raising the rates, I think that's going to be a harbinger for the economy to start turning itself around and give much more stability to the capital markets and allow us to achieve a sense of price stability that we really need to move the real estate industry forward. Will it require some significant pain between now and then for that to happen? Mike, I am concerned. Scott Reckler, a very good friend of mine from RxR, talks about he sees a slow running train going forward. I would see the momentum of the train in the last three or four or five months is picked up quite substantially. And I just am concerned for the unintended consequences of what comes out of this mess. And I think it's all avoidable in many respects. No taxpayer bailout at the end of the day. It's a lot of people working with each other to understand the implications in the material nature of real estate having on our, our overall national economy. Right, right. You know, John, like we mentioned at the beginning, I was surprised to find out that you're paying very close attention and perhaps even utilizing artificial intelligence. You know, I think of construction as sort of this industry that's not, you know, prone to technological disruption like many other industries, but I guess I'm wrong about that. Talk to us about the idea of AI in construction, where it's headed, you know, are you using it now? How could it help you run your business potentially? 
Let me share a brief story. Last week, I was up in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, with a guy by the name of Dean Kamen, a company yeah, called Deck. The st- Segway inventor, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he owns a company called Army. And what he's doing using artificial intelligence to manufacture organs. Wow. And I was completely, Mike, blown away. So that's the extreme. And I applaud him for what he's doing. And I was just overly, overly impressed. And I just want to wish him the best of luck. On the construction side, I think AI can be the single most impactful solution that's ever had on our industry. Let me tell you why. Productivity in construction in the last 50 years has actually gone down. It's the only category other than hunting and fishing, okay, that productivity <laughs> has, has, has lowered. True story, okay? <laughs> and therefore, when you think about technology solutions in a, in a blue-collar environment, the biggest challenge in construction real estate, I put it in two things. One, the design of the building and the schedule of the building. If we're able to leverage artificial intelligence through generative design, okay, like Elon Musk does, like Boeing does, okay? There's no doubt if we improve the accuracy of those design documents, we will move mountains as relates to cost and predictability. Just think about the Empire State Building. It took 14 months to build that building in the 30s. It takes five years to build that building today. Now look at the schedule side of things. We have a very difficult time measuring productivity. If we leverage AI, there's a solution out there called OpenSpace, which is one of the companies that we invested in. It actually can track labor productivity and labor production on a job site. We never had that type of artificial tool before in our toolbox. Now we do that. So I think over the next 18 months to 36 months, we're going to see more creative and interesting solutions that impact productivity and lower costs in our business than we've seen in the last 30, 40 years. Fascinating stuff. You know, the the mind reels when you think of all the potential applications of AI and how, how disruptive it can be throughout the economy. I never would have thought of it in the construction industry. It makes total sense now that you laid out for me. I appreciate that. John Fish, he is chairman and CEO of the construction company Suffolk. He is also chair of the Real Estate Roundtable. Really a privilege to hear your thoughts, John. I can't let you go quite just yet, though. We do have a tradition on this show where we're going to make you tell us the craziest thing you've seen in markets this week. I hope you're prepared. What I would say is I'm going to go back to that, you know, uh, Dean came an issue. Okay. And that may be not markets, but what it gives to me, it breathes new life into what's possible. Yeah. And as we often look at the glass half full, okay. I mean, half empty. I look at a half full and I see the potential of something like artificial intelligence on our construction category, on other categories, you know, whether it be educational situation, you know, Boston College admissions, I'm a severe dyslexic. So all of a sudden using Siri, Siri's my best friend, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. And then I take a look at what's going on in the hospital system, Brigham Women's Hospital, you know, radiology, uh, you know, DNA sequencing. People don't know one in four colonoscopies are, are, are bad. And so if we're able to improve the radiology and, and the accuracy of that type of you know, studies, I mean, it's going to change the world. So to me, how do we take a look at it with the proper guardrails, artificial intelligence, which is a conversation of the day, in a way that it betters man and doesn't destroy man? And I would like to see us all, especially the business community, not look to government to take the lead in this, but carry on the conversation with a sense of entrepreneurialism and knowing that this can give our country a competitive advantage. One last thing I want to point out to you. 
is that when you take a look at artificial intelligence over the last three or four years, this past year, the United States of America has invested over $50 billion in artificial intelligence. The Chinese invested 14, okay? UK's invested four and Israel invested three. So we have a substantial jump on this conversation. And I sit back and say to myself, how do we come together as a country, government and business, to leverage the hell out of this tool that's in our box today that could change the world the way we live? That's great to hear the thoughts of a glass half full guy. I think many of us, when we hear about this new disruptive technology, we go half empty immediately. But it's nice to hear the, the glass half full angle on it, John. I appreciate that. Um, I'll give you my craziest thing. John, I like the alternative asset classes. The, the more alternative, the better. And one of the funniest things I think, it's not funny, I guess it makes sense, is old Apple products, first generation Apple products, when they come up for auction, they can sell for some surprising prices. And the latest example is an original iPhone. So the first iPhone that came out in, I think it was 2007, courtesy of a story in Fortune. It's dubbed the Holy Grail iPhone to collectors because they did a four gigabyte model and an eight gigabyte model, but no one bought the four gigabyte. So it was discontinued very quickly. There's there's very few specimens of it available, especially still unused in the box, never activated like this. So to, to the type of people that are interested in this stuff, God bless them, but this is what they're after. So I regret to inform you, John, good news and bad news. Bad news is you're you're a contestant on a game show here. We like to call the prices precise. The good news is Valdana's off, so you're the only contestant. You're going to win no matter what. But what do you think this iPhone, holy grail, original iPhone, four gigabyte, in the box, unactivated, sold for at auction by LCG Auctions? Mind you, this was a few hundred bucks, I think, when it first came out. It was under a thousand, I think. I would estimate maybe twenty five thousand dollars. Twenty five thousand. That's that's a good guess. I one hundred ninety thousand for an iPhone. So I think they said three hundred times the original price. Mike, I would say to you this: is I think the iPhone introduction, the iPhone was revolutionary, and people can look at that, and that was a point in time when the world started to change. Yeah, I think right at that same point in time today with AI. All of a sudden, people look back 10 years, 20 years from now. When did this, you know, November 22, when OpenAI came up with this conversation, all of a sudden it's been the headlines every single day. So I, I think we're very similar points in time as it relates to evolution. And I think it's an exciting point in time, to be honest with you. And I feel that this could really, really help America in a very, very positive way. Yeah, you're absolutely right that the launch of that product really cha it changed all our lives, you know, significantly. It's fascinating how disruptive that was to the electronics industry. And I think you're right in that. Who knows all the various ways that AI will be disruptive, but without a doubt, it's a game changer. And really fascinating to hear your take on that and commercial real estate and everything else. John Fish, hope we can have you back again someday. Thank you very much. It's an honor and privilege to be here. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. 
What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.